Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Father, we are grateful for the sunshine this morning and the glimpses of spring that we're getting and the the hope that there is, there is a coming end to um, this pandemic. And even as we mourn the losses over the last year, we also see your, the glimpses of your grace and your goodness and your kindness to us. And so we pray that you would turn our hearts to be able to see your work in the midst of suffering. We pray today, as we open your word, that you would speak to us. We're thankful that that you have given us the book of Revelation and that, that we can spend the time to see how your word points to and culminates in this end and that, that this tells us something not only for the future, not only of what comes in the afterlife and in the new heavens and new earth, but, but how we can live now. And so we pray that you would move in our hearts this morning and we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. If you had to get a message out to the people you love, the people who love you, your family or friends or roommates, some people that knew you well, and let them know that you are not okay and that they need to send help, what would you say? Like, what would be the cue for people? I don't know what it is for you, but I think for me, I was thinking about this this morning and thinking like, like if, if, if people around me ever heard me say, no thanks, I don't want any of the bacon, I've gone vegan. They would immediately know something is wrong. Or if I said something like, I mean, I can't even find, bring myself to say it, but anything supporting the Green Bay Packers, I just couldn't, I couldn't do, and it would be evidence. Or, or for instance, for two decades of Alyssa and my marriage, we've said, you know, we're just not pet people. We will never get a puppy. And then this week we did. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what that says. But, but if you had to send a message, what would it be? The, the, the reality is that there are people around me in my life and, um, that, that know me. And the, nor, the more they know me, the more they would know that there are things that couldn't be true. And so, like Alyssa, my wife, and my kids, they don't have to theorize about what, a, a, what different counterfeit versions of me would look like because they would know, recognize immediately that it's not the real thing. This is why Scripture is essential for us. We can, and I think in Revelation, we've talked about this a lot, that in the book of Revelation, people have a tendency to turn this into a book of divine conspiracy theory, of trying to connect the dots and put together the, the charts and the end times board of what's going to happen, as if God is putting weird codes into this book for us to try to discern. And we're, we read newspapers with some of these things in hand and, and look that way when and, and so we can get paranoid about, about trying to learn how many ways 
there are counterfeit gospels or antichrists or when it's the, whether, whether it's the real antichrist. And so we see this all the time, that Christians get caught up in these end times images and try to find and discern them. And so we're constantly scattered trying to discern all those things. And, and that's why it's essential for us to spend less time trying to find divine conspiracy theory and more time immersed in God's word to learn to hear his voice. Because the more time we spend in Scripture, the more we'll see who God really is, the more we hear the voice of Jesus, and the more that we come to know what he is really like. And so when we see the counterfeits, it'll be obvious, because there will be a dissonance between what we see and what we know to be true. And we're in the book of Revelation this year because Revelation is a beautiful, hope-filled book. And, and this is something that I know that many of you have noticed as we've walked through it, that, that there are portions of Revelation that are frightening, that are hard to understand and hard to interpret. But, but by and large, what we've covered so far seems very clear. And there isn't a focus just on judgment and chaos. There's There's a focus on the throne of God, on churches that are faithfully pursuing Christ, on the vision of the risen Christ. And so we've seen that hope and that that helps us in a year like we've had. And so today, as we continue on, we come to Revelation chapter 13. And typically, for, for those bent more toward divine conspiracy theories in this book, this chapter is a gold mine. So today should be fun. And today we see the Antichrist, the beast, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet, the mark of the beast. And we're going to try to, to t- untangle the knot of what we see. Now remember, chapter 12, what we saw last week, begins a new section to the book of Revelation. It's a little bit of a pause that, that shows us something of God's work throughout human history before we come back in with the seven bowls of wrath, which echo the same end point as the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. It's all different ways to look at human history and what has happened. But chapter 12 showed us this vision of a woman and a dragon and and. Satan's pursuit to try to destroy God's people, and it ended ominously. It ends by saying that the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. Now, some older versions or translations and, and, and details of Scripture actually include that end point into chapter 13 because it flows in. But this is the transition of saying Satan is standing on the sand of the seashore. And that's ominous for us because if you read Scripture, the sea is, is consistently a place that is dark, a place that is unknown, a place of chaos, and a place of wickedness and evil. Think about Genesis chapter 1, when, when creation comes, that, that the imagery we have is that the earth was formless and empty, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep. What we see continue through Genesis 1 is that God is the powerful creator who brings order out of chaos and, and forms what was shapeless and fills what was empty. Now think about Exodus. That when Moses and, and the Israelites and the Hebrew people came to the shore of the Sea of Reeds and they were, they were stuck because in front of them there was a body of water and behind them was Pharaoh's armies who were pursuing them to try to kill them. And what happened? 
God parted the sea and held back the waters so that his people could cross safely to the other side. And then when Pharaoh's chariots and armies came in, he unleashed his, the chaos in, ju- in his judgment against them and destroyed Pharaoh's armies. And so now when we see Satan standing on the shore of the sea, on the sands of the sea, we're saying that something is emerging out of the chaos that is going to become clear as we go through chapter 13. And so this is what we read. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on, all the, on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear... Let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive into captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast could even, might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It also... It, causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom, that the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's talk about the Antichrist. There are two beasts, and so we'll take them in turn, and then we'll talk about how this applies to us. First, the first beast is anti-God authority. The first beast is anti-God authority. So we see this, right, that, that it has power, it, has, it comes out of the sea, so out of the chaos, and it has ten horns and seven heads and crowns on its horns and blasphemous names, and, and it is given the, the dragon, so Satan has given this 
being, this beast, his power, his throne, and his authority. He has a wounded head, but seems to have been healed. And he has, in, the world is worshiping the beast, saying, who is like this beast, and who can fight against it? It, has, it conquers the saints. Look at verse 7. That's frightening. It also, it was allowed to make war on the saints, God's people, and to conquer them. And all authority, and th- this echoes Revelation 7, right? This is familiar to us in our study, that it is given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation and all those who dwell on the earth. Now remember that the vision of God's people around the throne is that John looked and behold, it's saying there were 144,000, the fullness of the people of God, and he was told by one of the elders around the throne of God, look at the 144,000, look at the fullness of the people of God, and after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from where? From every nation, from all tribes, from all, and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And so this, this first beast has power and authority over all people on earth. And it has power and authority, and it is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Like, this isn't a very encouraging thing, right? If you have an ear, let him hear. This brings us back to the letters to the churches. He has an ear, he has an ear let him hear. But if you have an ear, let him hear. If anyone's taken captive, into captivity he goes. And if anyone's to be killed with the sword, with the sword you must be killed. So what do we do with the first beast? Everybody wants to identify the beast. The, this is the Antichrist. Is. And so some would say, if you go back to the 16th century, the reformers would say that this is the papacy. It's amazing. I love reading the Reformers. I've learned my theology has been shaped by the Reformers, but, but my goodness, when you read John Calvin's commentaries, it is, it, every passage of Scripture is applied to the Pope. Well, why? Because in the, in the issue of his day, that's what was happening, was a differentiation between the church in Rome and Rome and, and, and recovering some of the core of true Christianity. And so, the reformers kept pointing and using the language of the Pope is the Antichrist. Most of us probably wouldn't make that same connection now. Now, some would say that this looks at, and so this was, there were eras where this was Hitler or Stalin or Mao, that, that we see dictators rise up, that we can see some similarities with the beast here. Others have said that, you know, do you realize that every single U.S. president has had some that have declared that they are the Antichrist? Every single one of them. Like, people were freaked out because Ronald Reagan, his first, middle, and last name, all have six letters, and they were like, oh, this is it, 666. That didn't work out. But, but and some would look exclusively at first century Rome, and there's a lot of first century imagery here, that there were, there were seven major emperors after Caesar Augustus, and they took blasphemous names for themselves. So Nero, the emperor Nero called himself, he would sign his documents, Nero, savior of the world. Domitian would sign his documents, Domitian, our Lord and God. And so certainly there's echoes of Rome here, and, and, and the, there's some that would say that the fatal wound on one of the heads in verse 3 could allude to Nero, because after Nero died, there were rumors throughout the empire that he would emerge again and rise from death, but it didn't happen. But again, this, it's not best, as we've seen through Revelation, to read this as a strict chronology of things, is, but instead as we're seeing cycles to give us understanding of human history, that this applies to the seven churches, It applies to the church throughout the ages. It applies to us today. 
And so, this, these cycles, these snapshots of the last days between Christ's ascension to heaven and his return. Notice again, we see 42 months, and we saw, we've talked about that this period, three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, that this is a way to, this is how the time period between Christ's ascension and return is described in Revelation, that this is the wilderness days for God's people, the church. And so, as Vaughn Roberts, a, a pastor in Oxford says, or Cambridge says, the beast represents all anti-Christian powers in the last days. We might say totalitarian government setting itself up against God. This is the identity of the first beast. It's anti-God authority. Now remember Romans 13. In Romans 13, it talks about government, that God has established government, and he has appointed government, and given government the sword, and that government is God's servant, a minister of God, to do good, and for our good. But what we see in Revelation 13 is that, is that when, when human grasps for power be, become no longer a good gift of God, but are corrupted by Satan, it becomes an opponent of God's work, and that's what Satan does. Satan corrupts he, the good gifts of God, he kills, he steals, he twists, and he destroys. And so ultimately what we see here, if, we are, if we're going to understand this chapter, we need to understand, like much of Revelation, the, the background of how all of Scripture feeds into this and to see the, the imagery and what the imagery is trying to convey. And so it, it calls on, it, it talks about this beast, right, that it was like a leopard and its feet were like a bear's and its mouth like a lion's mouth and the dragon gave it all its power. And this is imagery that calls, it calls back imagery from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel saw four beasts that were a succession of rulers and empires in time. And so what John is seeing in Revelation is a combination of them all. And, and so this beast is a combination of those powers, and it indicates this anti-God power and then the culmination in the end. And, and then there's this fatal wound, and so what do we do with that? Well, what we see here in the two beasts, in the dragon, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, is we see Satan's best attempt at mimicking God and what he's done for us in the gospel. That this is the, an unholy trinity. That rather than Father and Son and Spirit working for our redemption and the restoration and renewal of all things, we see Satan's destructive pursuit, him giving power to the Antichrist and lifting him up to be worshipped, but ultimately it's worship of the dragon. We see this fatal wound that he seems to have been healed from just as Christ was killed on the cross and was raised from death to life. And I think we can see in this that as the beast represents all anti-God authority, that, that history shows us again and again and again that just when we think that totalitarian, dictatorial human power is eradicated forever, it re-emerges over and over and over and over again, and sometimes more beastly than others. John uses the language of Antichrist in his letters, so 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But in 1st John, he tells us, he shows us that the Antichrist isn't just one final figure. He says, children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. 
They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they, wouldn't have, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you are anointed by the Holy One, all of you who have knowledge. And so he warns us in his letters that there are antichrists that stand against what Christ has accomplished. Now, how does this apply to us here in the United States in 2020? We in the West, in particular, have been raised to believe and conditioned to believe that liberal, liberal democracy is the great protection against the beast and against tyranny. We can't have this happen because we have checks and balances. We could never experience a dictator rising to power again. Fascism couldn't take root in our country because we have a democracy and there is a vote but we need to note, and we need to see here, that, that it's not always grasping for power by war and terror. Do you see this in verse 4? They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? That doesn't sound like people coerced to follow a leader. This is people turning and worshiping the beast of their own free will. We would be fools if we didn't realize the human obsession with power and the reality that a democracy and a democratic republic are fully capable of electing the beast. This is what happened in Germany in 1933. And, and it, it, look, they will... We adore, people will adore the person in this position of power. And we, we do this in our country, that we, we attach ourselves to different people in election cycles, to, to, to attach ourselves to those who we believe will give us what we want and will give us the stability that we want. And, and in this town, we know that. that. That so many of you who work in politics directly or closely associated to politics realize that, that proximity to power is the actual currency of our city. You know that you're not paid what your education and experience and efforts reflect. You're paid in the idea of influence. And so we can look to create the beast in times of instability because we can look to a stronger government, a stronger leader to lead us through it and to stabilize things for us and, and freely give up our freedoms in pursuit of that stability. And so we need to be reminded that, yes, government is a good gift of God, but let's not be naive and forget that human structures and, and that led by human beings are all subject to sin and selfish power grabs. And so this first beast represents a culmination of evil and oppressive government that stands against God's people and pur his purposes, and it is also the evil spirit that has be been behind this throughout human history. And so we'd be fools not to acknowledge and see the spirit of the first beast in our own world and even the echoes and reverberations of this in our own nation. Now, the mortal wound that we see, the, the Greek word for, the, for the, his head being wounded, one of the heads being wounded, is plege, which is only used 11 other times in Revelation, and it is always divine action. So this means that the wound to the first beast is a God-inflicted wound. This 
has, again, echoes throughout the pages of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 3, after the ancient serpent, the dragon himself, had deceived Adam and Eve, and then they were exposed in their sin in rebellion against God, and God came to them and said, said uh, where are you? And they were hiding, and he, they said, we hid because we were naked. And he said, who told you that you were naked? And Adam blame shifts not just to his wife, but to God and says, hey, the woman that you gave me here, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And God said to the woman, what have you done? And she said, ah, it was the serpent. He deceived me and I ate. And so God cursed the serpent. He never cursed the man and the woman, but he cursed the serpent and said, cursed are you above all livestock and all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And listen to what God said to Satan at the very beginning. I will put enmity... Hatred between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Do you understand, in Genesis 3.15, theologians call this the proto-euangelion, the, the gospel before we knew what the gospel was. That what God was promising is that one would come, the offspring of the woman, born of the woman, her seed, and that, that Satan would get strikes in and strike his heel, but the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, would crush Satan's head in the end. And so when we come to Revelation chapter 13, like keep in context here too, Revelation chapter 12, what we just saw, when it says to us, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Why? For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him. How? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. Why? For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. And so what does this tell us? That the, the wound is the fatal blow to Satan's schemes. And that wound has come to Satan. The, the blow to Satan's head came through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has no power left. He has no hope of victory. Yes, he got a strike in, but God used that strike for his glory. And so the, the, it seems to have healed because Satan's destructive pursuits continue, but even that is lies and deception because what we see is that Satan is producing a weak parody of what Christ has accomplished, and he knows his time is short. So the first beast is anti-God authority. The second beast is anti-God ideology. The second beast is anti-God ideology. The second beast isn't as ugly. It's harder to recognize. In fact, I saw another beast rising out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb. He looks like a lamb. The second beast compared to the first is cute and cuddly. And, and, but do you, do you see this? He looked, he had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. All I could think of when I was reading this this week was the hobbit and smog. But that was the great danger of the dragon's smog laying on his treasure, was the riddles and the speech 
that could suck in anyone who listened. This is a spin doctor that makes us think he's harmless, even looks attractive, but, but make no mistake, the second beast has his master's voice. He speaks like a dragon. He uses miracles. He performs great signs that are, again, a parody of what God has done. We have this parody of, of one that performs great signs, the same way that Moses, the first prophet, performed great signs, making fire come down from heaven to earth, just like Elijah. And so, so Satan's saying, okay, God used Moses and Elijah. Watch this. I'm going to do the same. He, people are taken in and deceived by him. And later on throughout the book of Revelation in chapter 16 and 19 and 20, this second beast is called the false prophet. And like the first, he's taken on different forms at different times. And so in the first century, the, the imperial cult was really effective. And so you have Nero and Domitian and these emperors who are claiming these blasphemous titles, but, but that wasn't enough for people to, to make people worship them, for them to declare that on their own or just through the military strength of Rome. The effectiveness of the imperial cult was because it was, it was pushed locally. It was by local priests who knew their people who are making sure that they worshipped Rome. And again, it's continued throughout history that, that we see this with Mao and Lenin and Stalin and Hitler and North Korea today. And think about Nazi Germany, that you had Goebbels, who worked alongside Hitler, who celebrated and pointed to the accomplishments of Hitler and the miracle of what Germany was becoming, saying, saying look at the miracle of the Autobahn, look at the miracle of industry. We need to regain and recapture the identity of our nation. And so he had, he had the spin doctor on the side that was saying, don't look at the atrocities and the hard-to-see things of the first, but look now at the great things that we are doing. We see it today with movements like ISIS, how many people are radicalized and submit themselves to the wickedness of movements like ISIS, but, but people aren't forced into this. It begins with the mouths of local preachers who draw them into a vision worth dying for. The theologian Greg Beale says, the evil spirit behind Rome will also dominate other world powers which follow it in the same way that in the Old Testament... And so the beast symbolized not merely oppressing nations, but the system of spiritual evil standing behind na the nations and manifesting itself in successive empires spanning hundreds of years. So in our own politics, people are sucked in and so easily radicalized into grasping for strength and executing violence, but it's not usually through coercion. You don't force somebody into that kind of movement. It, it's because people appeal to our sense of hurt, to our fear, to the things that we're, we're most worried about, for our desire for stability, for our desire for control, and to know that everything is going to be okay, for, for our desire to have our rights put forward. And so especially in this nation, that's our individual rights that we want to stand on and want to gain. And, and all of this, though, points back, even though it might come through more subtle desires, it points back to the need to gain power in order to see those desires come to their fulfillment. That's the whole of human history. And we haven't evolved to some greater plane of existence or understanding the particulars change, but the song has remained the same. And so this beast, he has this, he, he points back to the first beast, who points back to the dragon. And look at, though, he also, there's elements of control that aren't just by the sword here. 
And, it's, and, and in the first piece, we see all that authority is given over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth and, and to conquer the saints. But look at what the second beast, the, the anti-God ideology and the religion of the beasts comes to be able to say is that now we again have a parroting and a parody of the gospel saying anybody can come to this. Small and great, rich and poor, both slave and free. You can be a part of what's happening. In the same way that we read in Galatians 3, that in Christ we are citizens of heaven. We have a new citizenship and, and that we're all one in Christ, that there is, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are one in Jesus. And, and so the second beast is saying, saying, come on in. There's no economic, socioeconomic division here. We can all come together. Come on in, rich and poor. Come on in, free and slave. You feel small and insignificant? Come on in. You have great influence? Come and join us and wield that influence. And he marks people on the right hand and the forehead. There's economy based in this that no one can buy or sell unless they're, 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 he has the mark and the name of the beast is the number of his name. And so, so the people are, brand themselves willingly to align themselves with power. It's language here, it's reminiscent of the way that slaves were branded in the ancient world. It shows a kind of ownership. And, and it's on, our, on the right hand, so it controls actions. And it's on the forehead, showing that it controls thoughts. And so, but the beast is so clever that this is not a shameful mark. It's a badge of honor. Something that people want. That, that governments are so good at creating these marks, and we long for them to show that we are in, to show that we matter. And again, this shouldn't be surprising to us. This shouldn't be vague or unclear to us. How often, walking around Capitol Hill, I think it's fun walking around Capitol Hill to see how old of a campaign bumper sticker you can find on cars. Like, it's, it's always been funny to me. And there was a long, there was a while that I, I think in my head I was like, man, your candidate lost. Why do you still have that sticker on your car? And then I realized, oh, this is a badge of honor. This is a, a, a form of subtle, silent protest of, I am not with this administration. Here's the sticker to prove it. Capitol Hill loves our yard signs. We don't even really have yards. <laughs> but we'll put them in windows and, and zip tie them to the wrought iron fences and whatever we can to be able to show where, who we are associated with, to show where we stand, to make sure that people wouldn't ever think that we're part of that other group. We self-select ourselves for branding, to be branded and marked, to be associated and aligned with human systems and structures and powers because we think that that is a way to secure our stability and our values, and ultimately, that this is the only hope for human flourishing. And so as we've watched in our own nation, as religion has been further taken from the center of public life and marginalized, then it has created a void. And this is something that has been written about in the New York Times and in the Atlantic. This is not just a Christian observation. That with the removal of any religious commitments from the public sphere and the rise of the nuns and those who don't claim any religion, then what has happened is that human beings haven't stopped being spiritual or religious, but we have turned other things into our religion. And the fact that our, in the United States of America, 
America, people have turned politics into a religion has never been clearer. And this isn't about sides. Because it might be an abuse of power that is blasphemous and clearly stands against who God is and what God has chosen and against his people, or it could be much more slimy and subtle, but still sound with the, still speak with the dragon's voice. And we need to remember chapter 12. Satan is ready to make war against us, and he's been at this game for thousands of years. Now, in first century Rome, no one could join a trade guild without an allegiance to the imperial cult. You need to offer sacrifices to the imperial cult in order to do that. And again, this is something that has continued throughout the ages. So will Christians across the world at some point in the future um, be excluded from participation in society? Well, that exists in some places today. And yes, it may come to its ultimate fruition in one global figure in the end, But again, what we see here is that this is something that we have to expect and be ready for no matter where we live and what is going on. But but in the midst of it, if you're in Christ, don't forget chapters 4 and 5. There's a greater throne. There's a greater power. And nothing happens outside of God's sovereign control. It's Jesus who is sovereign, reigning now. That isn't just future. He is reigning now over the kingdoms of the earth. And so that's why it says that the beast is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Because nothing can happen outside of God's control. But, but yeah, are there going to come points where the personal and community life and ethics of Christians and of the church are so far in contrast with that of a city or nation that it gets excluded from public life? Absolutely, and we see it all the time. Now, one, Christians need to be careful not to cry wolf here with everything that we see that is a subtle slight, but, but yes, this is a reality that we need to be aware of. And so what do we do with the number? Well, you guys have heard this, right? Six, six, six. We're scared by that number. Like, if, if, you, if you went to the DMV and were able to get a license plate, which if you do, praise the Lord for that right now. <laughs> I don't know how that would happen. Those of you who have tried to work with the DMV through, over the last year, I, I don't know how, why it is what it is. But <laughs> DC's DMV is, is tough right now. But if you got a license plate that said, you know, whatever letters, GB666, would you put that on your car? I don't know if I would. <laughs> just would feel a little weird, even though I'm about to tell you that it wouldn't matter. We've heard that number. Like, when you, we see that number pop up, it gives us a little, like, heebie-jeebies. And, and there's all kinds of theories on this mark, right? That this call, but it says this is the number of his name. It calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's no, it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. And so some have said this is going to be a tattoo on our right hand or on our forehead. Or some have said this is going to be a microchip that gets inserted and we need to scan the microchip in order to buy and sell and it'll control global economy. Or some have tried to make these conspiracy theories that, that vaccines are the way this is going to happen and they're really inserting a microchip that's, and they're going to control you through 5G towers. Let me just say on that, that is not true, <laughs> And um, I'm really grateful that, thank God, yesterday I got a vaccine. And, and so I'm, I'm grateful for that. And as your pastor, I want you to hear me say that I, am, I thank God for the grace, the common grace of modern medicine, the massive effort to develop multiple versions of this vaccine that, Lord willing, will be effective at ending the spread of a virus that has taken 2.65 million lives so far and has infected over 119 million people. 
But, but all of these, we need to be careful here because, again, people are constantly looking for being duped into taking the mark of the beast. There is nothing in chapter 13 of Revelation that says that this is something we can get tricked into. This is something that people are willfully, joyfully embracing. And, and so what does the text say? That this is about the pursuit of Satan against God's people. This is the unholy trinity of Satan, the dragon, and his servants in authority and power positions. Rulers who don't reflect the beauty and truth of Christ's kingdom, but their pursuit of personal power. And funny enough is that typically those who are most concerned about avoiding the mark of the beast are also those who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. I'm not going to get into what that is, but let me just say that if you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, then your reading of Revelation and that theological system says that you won't be here anyway. So stop worrying about it. And so, but if we don't hold to that and we think that God is pulling us through suffering and into the end anyway, then we need to understand that, that this mark of the beast has to be read in context of Revelation because, as we've said often, as I've heard from my professor and mentor, Dr. Carson, that, that a, a text without context is just pretext for a proof text. And so what do we read in the context? This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. His number is 666. And then look at verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 1. John didn't write this with chapter divisions. And so the very next verse is, I, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and the Father's name, where? Written on their foreheads. You're not going to accidentally take the mark of the beast. God's name is written on those who belong to him, on all those who have turned to him in Christ. Satan will demand loyalty through human powers and systems and structures and give symbols and tokens of loyalty so that people can show their allegiance. But nobody will be duped into this. Nobody will take it on accident. But there is a danger that at any time we might give our loyalty and commitment more to governing powers and authorities than we do to Christ as our king. There is a danger here and a warning here that, that people will be marked as part of Satan's destruction rather than marked as part of the people and community of God redeemed in Christ. And so what we see here, remember, when we understand what 666 means, remember that we've talked about the importance of numbers in the book of Revelation, that the number seven is completion. And so we see that, that the, the sevenfold spirit of God is the fullness of God's spirit. That, and, and meanwhile, we see that that six is the number of man, and it's incomplete. And so remember, as we've walked through, the sixth seal was judgment against humanity and against Satan's followers. But the seventh seal is the culmination of all things when God renews and restores. The sixth trumpet is judgment against the world. But the seventh trumpet is when God's kingdom comes to earth. So, so what is 666? Well, also remember that God is called holy, holy, holy. And so there's, he is the fullness of holiness in three. And so here, what we see is in 666 that Satan and those who serve him and listen to Satan's voice are always falling short of God's glory and perfection. That it is, this is saying this is the perfect 
imperfection. It is the complete incompleteness. That what Satan does will, have, will masquerade itself as being glorious like God, but it will never quite get there. And so when we, keep the, when we read the number 666, this isn't some kind of weird code that we need to try to interpret, but we need to remember that God alone is holy, holy, holy. That he alone is perfect and complete, and that Satan is always falling short, always falling short, always falling short of God's majesty and glory. All right, so what do we do? I'm supposed to finish this in four minutes. Living in the last days. Two points that we see from the text that are clear calls. Again, we don't have to search for what this text means to us. Look at what it says right in it. In chapter 13, verse 10, here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. What do we do when we're confronted with anti-God power and anti-God authority? We are called to endurance and faith. So rest in the fact that Christ has saved you and marked you and that, that no one can take that away from you. That if you are in Jesus, if you've turned to Jesus in belief and repentance, then God's name is written on your forehead and you belong to him. Grant Osborne said here, Christians are protected from God's wrath, but not from the beast's wrath. Yet this is no defeat, for martyrdom is victory in this book. The beast believes he is conquering the saints. Instead, he is conquered by the saints, specifically because they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Satan and his beasts can't win. In fact, they've already lost. And God allows the first beast to blaspheme and slander. He allows the first beast to conquer the saints. He allows the first beast to receive nearly universal worship and make it look like the whole world is turning to him. But the call to Christians who live in the last days is not to grasp for greater power to overthrow the beast themselves. The call to Christians is to trust that even when we suffer and we are killed, that God is faithful and we must endure it to the end. This is why when in Gethsemane, Peter took a sword out and tried to take off the high priest's servant's head and missed because he's a fisherman and has never swung a sword before. Caught the guy's ear and Jesus stopped everything and while he's being arrested by guys with torches, healed the man's ear and put it back in place and told Peter, put away the sword. Peter had been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What, what do, if we've been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, what do we want with the sword? Let the government have that. To, to reciprocate evil for evil, or violence for violence, or deception for deception, or oppression for oppression, is simply falling into the hands of our enemy and feeding the dragon in his fury. But if you're in Christ, your name is written in his book, so endure to the end and you'll be given the crown of life. Second, we're called to wisdom. And so it says in, in, back in verse 10, for the first beast, here's a call to the endurance and faith of the saints. In verse 18, with the second beast, all of this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate this. 
And so while the first beast is, is Antichrist's power, the second is, is the false prophet, is religion and ideology. And so it's saying walk carefully and with wisdom, especially when it comes to politics and power. So-called Christians will get sucked into this too, and it, it happens all the time through syncretism, that Christians will tack on extra things and make it so that you will actually come to believe that, that, that we have to be a part of a certain, a certain, poli- certain political persuasion or leaning or part of a certain, a certain mentality in order to be called truly Christian. There's all kinds of gymnastics that people do to try to bend scripture to the ever-changing whims of our society on all sides. But Jesus warned about us about false prophets and false messiahs in Mark 13. Go read that if you want. We don't have time to go there now. But Mark 13, Jesus said, watch out, there are antichrists coming and false prophets coming. In 2 Thessalonians 2, we read about this in a warning that the lawless one will be revealed. And in 2 Corinthians 11, that Satan himself, why would, we should never be, we should never be surprised when wickedness conceals itself as good because Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And so this calls for wisdom, but remember, you are either marked and sealed for destruction or you are marked and sealed for life. That those are the options we see in Revelation. There's no in-between. And so the call, if you're a Christian, is walk in wisdom. If you're a Christ, then he is your good shepherd. And he says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And so we, we hear his voice through his word. And, and yes, this can feel overwhelming but it, because we want to know what are the lies I might fall into. I don't want to unknowingly slip into it. But again, I want to come back to where we started. You will never be able to discover all of the ways that Satan can lie. You will never be able to discern how every lie can be spun or every false movement might come along, but you can come to know the truth so well that you immediately recognize it when something is not it. So we have this full chapter describing Satan's poor attempt at counterfeiting God's beauty and majesty, a false trinity, a false Christ, a false prophet. So let's take the warnings. Move forward in endurance and faith. Turn to Christ in faith and walk in wisdom. And let's not make it out to say that that most of Revelation is focused on Satan and his schemes. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we're in the wilderness right now. We're in the three and a half years, the 42 months, the 1260 days. We, but but we, we need to keep walking forward knowing that the way that we are, what we are living through now only prepares us for glory. Satan has been thrown down. He's already been defeated in the death and resurrection of Christ. The fatal wound to his power came at Christ's victory on the cross, and Jesus has sealed those who are his, and no one can take us from his hands, and so rest this week. Spend more time exploring the boundless depths of who God is and what he has done in Christ and resting in his spirit than on stressing about counterfeit gods and gospels in this broken world. The ancient serpent's head has been crushed. The great great dragon is in the last writhings of his fury, and he cannot win. Father, we need you to encourage our hearts with that today. Because it's hard for us to believe. We've been in a year of uncertainty, and we vacillate between, most of us vacillate between frustration and fear and anxiety and getting bored with trying to observe things well? Would you give us clarity today? That there's hope for us in Christ. That we don't have to be afraid of Satan and his schemes. Yeah, he might crush us and might be allowed to conquer us, but 
that as we pass through death, we are brought into the glory of resurrection life. I pray today that you would, in this moment that we are living through, continue to sift and purify your church. That you would expose false gospels and syncretism that are preached from so-called Christian pulpits and expose them for what they are. That you would give us endurance and faith to walk through whatever you have for us and, and that you have given us the endurance and faith to make it through this past year, but that you'd help us to continue and give us the power to do so. And We pray that you would give us wisdom to be able to know the real thing, the true Christ from Satan's schemes. And help us to realize the difference between the voice of our good shepherd and the hissing whispers of the great dragon. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.